This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hi! Welcome! This is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough. And this is Trapper Kinchin, the writer who doesn't write enough. So this is obviously very special because it's our first <laughs> episode. Yes, it is. And yeah, basically this is the Writer Who Reads podcast. It's connected to a kind of neglected but really um, lovely blog called The Writer Who Reads mm-hmm. um, that I write on yes. and Trapper might <laughs> one, one day. Days, yeah. <laughs> so um, the goal of this podcast is to take a look at authors and writers who, you know, you may have seen and heard from before, but maybe may not be familiar with and learn a little bit about them and read their works and kind of discuss it. We really want to draw attention to the type of literary artists that inspire us as authors, Mm -hmm. uh, while simultaneously, I think, explore their works, pick out the things we like best. It really comes down to what inspires us as writers and the stuff we read that we think, I wish I had written that. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. And total disclaimer, yeah. um, we're not academics. Mm-mm. Or I mean, we're educated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We met in college. Yeah. We both were doing creative writing degrees. So we studied English and we've been through a lot of writing workshops, as terrifying as they are. That and being said, <laughs> yeah, we are by no means formal. We did not run those no, workshops. We're look when it comes to literary theory and criticism, we know the basics. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> we like to be—I um, don't know—we're com- conversationalists. So exactly. when we get on a roll, it, the rules don't apply. I think exactly, and I mean. We love this stuff, so yeah. we're gonna talk about it. Exactly. And you may disagree with some things <laughs> that we say, especially if you're like this professor somewhere. Right. But yeah, we're just we're here to have fun and learn about new authors and read more. Yeah. And, Hopefully, inspire everyone to do the same. And yeah, be inspired to write more too. Mm-hmm. So today, for our very first episode, we want to run with the theme. It's kind of what we're gonna do for each podcast episode: pick authors who fall in line with that theme, whether it be directly or loosely. Mm-hmm. And today's theme is secrets. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about two authors who, in their personal lives and kind of simultaneously through their works, harbored, I mean a secret, but really used their work as a means of self-expression that they weren't able to do maybe in their everyday lives because of the times in which they lived or the expectations that were foisted upon them. Yeah, and so how it's going to work is that basically we each have picked an author that we want to share a little bit about. We're going to tell you a little bit about those authors and then read a little bit of their work and talk about it in a very relaxed, non... (laughs) Glass of wine. Two glasses of wine. Dimmed lights. Absolutely. (laughs) Really relaxed kind of way, so let's go. Okay, are you ready to hear about Willa Cather? Yes. Well, let me get started with, at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. Mm -hmm. She was actually born Willella Siebert Cather in Black Creek, Virginia on December 7th, 1873. Which, by the way, I want to say this. I didn't think of this before. We're recording this podcast on December 9th. Oh my gosh. So her birthday was two days ago and she would have been... I'm not going to do the math. Don't do the math. Because we were English majors. English majors, yeah. (laughs) But anyway, she would have been like... 
what, a hundred and some odd years old if she was You're asking me. I know. (laughs) But she was actually um, the eldest of an eventual seven children raised by Charles and Virginia Cather. Her father's family had lived in the valley for six generations, so around the 17th century is when they got there. And they were actually Welsh. She grew up near Winchester, which is west of Washington, so I don't think they often went into town, but they weren't totally isolated in like Appalachia or anything like that. Her mother was a former school teacher, and her father had a sheep farm. He was sympathetic to the Union during the Civil War, and after the war ended, this caused a little bit of a conflict with some of the local population mm. who had hurt feelings. Yeah. Virginia was a part of the Confederacy. So, of course, they did. Right. And that actually had an impact on Cather when she was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, she felt the effects of Reconstruction in a sort of interesting way because some of the resentment that people felt about the South being rebuilt was aimed at her, her family. Because of their support of the Union. Exactly. Mm. They lived in a Greek Revival-style home named Willowshade, and it sat on about 130 acres. And the house had been given to her parents by her paternal grandparents. But when she was nine years old, her family moved from Virginia to Webster County, Nebraska, which the place in which they lived, I believe, was northwest of the town of Red Cloud. Her extended family went west in April of 1883, and the party included her mother, her father, her three siblings that were born at the time, her maternal grandmother, Rachel Boak, and two of her grandmother's grandchildren, and the family's servant, Margie Anderson. So everybody moved. Everybody went. (laughs) And they took the train from Virginia to Nebraska. In an interview from 1913, she actually described the drive from Red Cloud to her family's homestead on the prairie. And she said, We drove out from Red Cloud to my grandfather's homestead one day in April. I was sitting in the hay in the bottom of a Studebaker wagon, holding onto the sides of the wagon to steady myself. The roads were mostly faint trails over the bunch of grass in those days. The land was open range and there was almost no fencing. We drove further and further out into the country. I felt a good deal as if I had come to the end of everything. It was a kind of erasure of personality. So she must have felt kind of bleak, mm-hmm. leaving the hills and the trees of Virginia and seeing nothing yeah, yeah, but open space. Mm-hmm. She was known for being naturally curious as a child, and when she moved to Nebraska, she got a unique opportunity that she probably would not have had if her family had stayed in Virginia. She actually spent a lot of time studying the different European immigrants who were living in Nebraska. She was described by a family friend as one of those genius children, a show-off, an explosion, a pest. Mm -hmm. So precocious. Yes. Initially, she attended a one-room schoolhouse, but her father was poorly equipped for prairie farming. So after a year and a half, they moved into Red Cloud from the prairie. At the time, the town had a population of about 1,800, so it was kind of large for one of those frontier communities. (laughs) 1,800. It was a railroad hub, Mm -hmm. hence the large size, and some of its amenities included a horse-drawn streetcar and an opera house. So luxurious. I know, right? Her family, when they moved into town, rented a house, and her father opened a real estate office. He also dabbled in insurance and loans. And on either side of the rented house, they had some pretty interesting neighbors, but the ones that had the heaviest impact on her was a Jewish couple who were fluent in French and German. And why they were so important to her is that they allowed her access to their extensive personal library. And this had a heavy influence on her lifelong passion for literature. She spent a great deal of time exploring the countryside, 
she was curious after all, and she was a huge music lover. She decided to become a doctor and made friends with all the local physicians. She cut her hair and she started dressing as a boy. She referred to herself as Willie William or W.M. Cather, M.D. She graduated from high school at age 16 in 1890 and immediately attended the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Initially wanting to study medicine, she ultimately decided to study English after a professor submitted her essay on Carlisle to the Lincoln Journal and they actually published it. Um, she said that the moment she read her work printed in the newspaper, she knew she had become was, a writer. She was addicted to it. Exactly. Yeah. She graduated from the university in 1895. She was a member of the student newspaper, and at one point she became its managing editor. She was also the literary editor of the university's yearbook. She started writing for local newspapers while she was a student, too, so she was getting a lot of experience in sort of periodical writing and yeah. stuff like that. After graduating, she moved home to Red Cloud for a year, but then afterwards she got a job running the Home Monthly, quote-unquote, magazine in Pittsburgh, which was just a standard ladies' magazine of the day, kind of a riff on ladies' home journal, that kind of thing. She became very socially active in Pittsburgh in a way that she really hadn't been in Red Cloud. So was she still presenting as masculine? No, at this point she had reverted back to presenting almost entirely as, you know, feminine. Um, And I think that shift occurred in college, maybe halfway through, Mm -hmm. kind of inexplicably. No one knows why. There's not a diary excerpt or any sort of letter she wrote that would explain it. Mm -hmm. Um, All that anyone knows is that for a period of time, she looked and referred to herself as a boy, and then suddenly she was Willa again, Mm -hmm. and for the rest of her life, she was very feminine in appearance, long hair pinned back, big hats, jewelry, dresses always, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. And when she was in Pittsburgh, I think it was maybe important, I don't know, maybe moving east, it became even more important to present femininely because mm-hmm. social expectations were heightened there. Yeah, and then the West had a certain... Freedom. Yes. I agree. Yep. Not to say there weren't rules, but surely one could it's be a little more wild expressive. West, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and... Um, Back to her work, she stayed with the, the Ladies Magazine for a year before she became the Telegraph editor at the Pittsburgh Daily Leader, which was a newspaper. And she worked there until 1901, when she accepted a high school teaching position and she taught until 1906. While she was living in Pittsburgh, she became friends with a woman named Isabel McClung. And she was a sort of debutante. She was the daughter of a judge. Um, a prominent family in Pittsburgh, and Cather and McClung actually went to Europe together in 1902. All the while, and I should say this, from the time she was in Red Cloud in high school up until this point, she was writing fiction and poetry privately. She moved to New York in 1906 to write for McClure's Magazine, and she became its managing editor in 1908. I just want to say... McClure's was at the time the sort of, um, I don't know how to put it, apex mm-hmm. of literary, um, of like literature in the United States at the time. Yeah. So it was a big deal that she got to write for them. Through McClure's, she reconnected with a woman named Edith Lewis, whom she knew from Lincoln. And they actually lived together from 1906 until Cather's death in 1947. Wow. Yeah. And neither of them ever married, mm-hmm. sort of. Just the two of them. 
come to your own conclusions that yeah. kind of thing. What is that, a Boston marriage? Yeah, yeah. I think that's Almost. the term for it. I don't know <laughs> if it was just like we're two single women and we're living together. Saving on rent. Right. But they certainly had a, a level of affection for each other uh-huh. that um, bare minimum was like, she's my best friend. Mm-hmm. Best, yeah. best friend. Best, best friend. <laughs> and then McClung, the debutante from Pittsburgh, functioned as a sort of muse for Cather throughout her writing career. And Lewis was one of Cather's most important critics and editors privately. And scholars really don't know how much influence Lewis exercised over what we now read of Cather's work, how much she cut, how much she added, how she affected tone or voice, nobody really knows. But she was certainly important to Cather privately. Cather left full-time editorial work in 1912, and she ultimately won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1923 for her novel, One of Ours, which was a novel set during World War I about an American soldier. She was extremely productive between the years of 1923 and 1932, and she published six books pretty, in pretty rapid succession. Scholars recognize, for the most part, that her writings bear a feminist slant, and much of her later works deal with the correlation between femininity and aging, which maybe has something to do it's with... interesting. As yeah, she got older, exactly. femininity resurfaced. Yeah, and it kind of maybe... Maybe that is connected to um, the way she presented when she was a young woman. Yes. I don't know, but it might have some sort of influence on that. She died of a cerebral hemorrhage on April 24th, 1927, and she was 73. What's interesting is, at some point, she started lying about the year in which she was born. So people thought she was born in 1876, but she was not. And her funeral was held in Manhattan. And a memorial service was held in her honor at the Episcopal Church in Red Cloud, and she's buried in New Hampshire. Her headstone bears her name, the incorrect birth date that I just told you about, (laughs) and a line from her 1918 novel, My Antonia, which reads, That is happiness, to be dissolved into something complete and great. The last thing she ever published was Sapphira and the Slave Girl, which actually... Although Cather is pretty well known as a Midwestern writer, sort of the American heartland frontier, her last novel took place in her in Virginia and had yeah, to do with the issue of slavery. Which you almost expect yeah, someone right. to go back to their roots exactly. at a certain she, point. Mm-hmm. She was nine years old when she left, so surely she bore conscious memories of living mm-hmm. there. It's not like she was a baby taken from it. Yeah, or even have the desire to like do some research because exactly. you were a child when mm-hmm. you left. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like it all came full circle. Yeah. She also wrote short fiction, and um, there are lots of collected, sort of collections of her work. Um, things have continued to be printed posthumously in, under like some of the stuff she's written, and actually the most recent thing released was The Selected Letters of Willa Cather, as edited by Janice Stout and Andrew Jewell in 2013. Hmm. So she's still kind of relevant. Yeah, in terms re- really of recent. Mm-hmm. But I have chosen, as a little reading for our discussion today before we kick off our analysis and sort of introspective thoughts about things, um, a section from chapter one of my favorite of her novels, mm-hmm. O Pioneers! Exclamation point. And um, the reason I chose it is because I think it, in some capacity, sort of reflects some of the things you've already talked about. Gender presentation, femininity beauty, that sort of thing. Things I think that sort of weighed heavily on her mind, not just as a writer, but as a human being. Mm -hmm. So that's why I've chosen it. And it's just a short passage from chapter one of um, the book. Yeah, let's hear it. 
Yeah, this feels a little bit like second grade when the teacher's like, now it's your turn to read. Read aloud, child. Read aloud. <laughs> in full disclosure, the characters in this book are Swedish. I'm not going to attempt to the Swedish Oh, but accent. you tried earlier. I tried earlier. It was lovely. It wound up being the voice of the offspring of a German woman and a Russian man. It's great that you know that. And great that we're not going <laughs> to offend any Swedish people. True. By attempting, by the attempting it. <laughs> I mean, if, look, if had I had a little cocktail prior to this. But you did. You mean another? I guess I mean a larger tumbler. <laughs> I didn't make it strong enough. I, right. I maybe would do my best. <laughs> See how Russian I sound Yikes. when I'm trying to be Swedish? <laughs> no. <laughs> Swedish people, cover your ears. Remember the Swedish chef where he was like, you talking about the Muppets? Yes. How did you translate him as being Swedish? He was. He was called the Swedish chef. Oh. But that's another podcast. That's a uh, completely <laughs> twisted so, podcast. Anyway, Miss Austin, I think mm-hmm. I will take my turn to read. Absolutely. O Pioneers by Willa Cather. On the sidewalk in front of one of the stores sat a little Swede boy crying bitterly. He was about five years old. His black cloth coat was much too big for him and made him look like a little old man. His shrunken brown flannel dress had been washed many times and left a long stretch of stocking between the hem of his skirt and the tops of his clumsy copper-toed shoes. His cap was pulled down over his ears. His nose and his chubby cheeks were chapped and red with cold. He cried quietly, and the few people who hurried by did not notice him. He was afraid to stop anyone, afraid to go into the store and ask for help. So he sat wringing his long sleeves and looking up a telegraph pole beside him, whimpering, My kitten, oh my kitten, I will freeze. At the top of the pole crouched a shivering gray kitten, mewing faintly and clinging desperately to the wood with her claws. The boy had been left at the store while his sister went to the doctor's office, and in her absence, a dog had chased his kitten up the pole. The little creature had never been so high before, and she was too frightened to move. Her master was sunk in despair. He was a little country boy, and this village was to him very strange and perplexing, where people wore fine clothes and had hard hearts. He always felt shy and awkward here, and wanted to hide behind things for fear someone might laugh at him. Just now, he was too unhappy to care who laughed. At last, he seemed to see a ray of hope. His sister was coming, and he got up and ran towards her in his heavy boots. His sister was a tall, strong girl, and she walked rapidly and resolutely, as if she knew exactly where she was going and what she was going to do next. She wore a man's long ulster, not as if it were an affliction, but as if it were comfortable and belonged to her, carried it like a young soldier, and a round plush cap, tied down with a thick veil. She had a serious, thoughtful face, and her clear, deep blue eyes were fixed intently on the distance, without seeming to see anything, as if she were in trouble. She did not notice the little boy until he pulled her by the coat. Then she stopped short and stooped down to wipe his wet face. Why, Emile, I told you to stay in the store and not come out. What is the matter with you? My kitten, sister, my kitten. A man put her out and a dog chased her up there. His forefinger, projecting from the sleeve of his coat, pointed up to the wretched little creature on the pole. Oh, Emile, didn't I tell you she'd get us into some kind of trouble if you brought her? What made you tease me so? But there, I ought to have known better myself. She went to the foot of the pole and held out her arms, crying, Kitty, kitty, kitty! But the kitten only mewed and faintly waved its tail. Alexandra turned away decidedly. 
No, she won't come down. Somebody will have to go up after her. I saw the Lindstrom's wagon in town. I'll go and see if I can find Carl. Maybe he can do something. Only you must stop crying or I won't go a step. Where's your comforter? Did you leave it in the store? Never mind. Hold still till I put this on you. She unwound the brown veil from her head and tied it about his throat. A shabby little traveling man, who was just then coming out of the store on his way to the saloon, stopped and gazed stupidly at the shining mass of hair she bared when she took off her veil. Two thick braids, pinned about her head in the German way, with a fringe of reddish-yellow curls blowing out from under her cap. He took his cigar out of his mouth and held the wet end between the fingers of his woolen glove. My God, girl, what a head of hair, he exclaimed, quite innocently and foolishly. She stabbed him with a glance of Amazonian fierceness and drew in her lower lip, most unnecessary severity. It gave the little clothing drummer such a start that he actually let his cigar fall to the sidewalk and went weakly in the teeth of the wind to the saloon. His hand was still unsteady when he took his glass from the bartender. His feeble, flirtatious instincts had been crushed before, but never so mercilessly. He felt cheap and ill-used, as if someone had taken advantage of him. Wow, I'm a fan. Oh, I've converted you. Absolutely. I need to read the whole book. Yes, I recommend you do. Yes. So, I want to dive right in. Okay. And I want to talk about the gender stuff that's going on in this, okay. because it is wonderful. And after hearing a little bit about her life, I don't understand why the character Alexandra, mm-hmm. you know, is kind of portrayed the way she is, and she is a badass. And like, the what? how many pages was that? Oh, this was... Two pages, maybe? Yeah, like just immediately. Yeah, you this just... is the first chapter, look at he split. So oh, that's wonderful. She's putting it right out there. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Swooping in to save the day immediately. Yeah, she does a great job, I think, because Alexandra is the focalizing character and she sets, I mean, characterization starts the minute that that girl walks out of the doctor's office. Uh-huh. And the same with the little boy, too. Yeah. You know, but it, she just hits the ground running with those characters. I mean, the minute the cat climbs up the pole yeah. and like the little boy is helpless and no one cares. Exactly. You're setting you're setting Alexandra up for exactly. a great reveal or entrance into the story. Yeah. So yeah, that's great. What um, stood out to you? Like, well, when you said you want to jump right in, did something stand out? There were like two things about it that were really interesting to me. Okay. First off, her clothing. You know, she spent some time talking about her coat, which was called a... The Ulster coat. An Ulster coat. She calls it a man's Ulster coat. A man's. She needs to specify it. She did, yeah. But please, share with us what an Ulster coat is. I anticipated this question. <laughs> you did your research. And Googled Im- Google imaged So you're coat. saying you also did not know what an I had no idea what an so Ulster coat is. So everyone, if you don't know what an Ulster coat is, don't feel bad. An Ulster coat, mm-hmm. similar to an Inverness coat... Mm was a style of well the the Ulster coat was sort of an everyday working coat yeah. and it's basically what Sherlock Holmes wore so it was like the long coat with like the little cape thing on the back stylish yes. yeah with like long sleeves and it was a gentleman's coat huh okay yeah. all right so for this young woman to wear and then they ever say how old she was it doesn't say in the beginning but she's I believe a teen at the start a teen of the yeah so, if you go back to Willa Cather as a teenager, there you go. She went by William or mm-hmm. what else? Willie. Willie, mm-hmm. and she wore trousers and cut her hair short. Exactly. So I think that's very interesting. Just a very direct characterization. It's juxtaposed to, <clears throat> and throughout the novel, you'll see this the style of her hair, mm-hmm. um, the sort of German braids, and if you think about it, it's like a milkmaid. You know, the halo of braid that's at, like at the top of the head. Mm-hmm. 
which uh, is a sort of little girl <laughs> hairstyle if you think about it. Yeah. So you have this masculine coat and heavy boots yeah. that they describe juxtaposed with this childlike hairstyle, which she maintains throughout the novel, mm-hmm. even into her 40s, and a veil. Yeah. Which but is, at, at the same time, it kind of makes sense. You know, it's very practical to have your hair braided true. and up and out the way. Yeah. Style is not an issue, I don't think. No. It's <laughs> utility functions. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. What was the second thing you found interesting? The second thing came towards the end. Okay. Um, and I don't want to skip ahead too much, but when she, when the, the man came out yeah, and she looked at him, and <laughs> I don't have a direct quote, but she said like her, her stare stabbed him or something. Yes. I want to find that and just look at it. Oh yeah. It says she stabbed him with a glance of Amazonian fierceness. Yeah. That's intense. That's intense. That's. I mean, it's, and it, it says so much at the same time. Like, okay, you're you're further characterizing her. You're saying that she's an Amazon, right? And just with a simple glance, like she doesn't have to say anything. This is a situation where I mean, let's get real. We're talking. This was written in 1913. I believe it takes place. This part of the book takes place at the end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. We're about a period of time where gender dynamics, the infamous, what was the word? Not duality. What do we call it? The gender binary. Mm. Where the binary was at its peak. We're talking about the end of the Victorian yeah. era. And so the relationship between men and women was um, old-fashioned by our modern standards. Absolutely. And women, they couldn't speak no. a certain, like the tone of your voice. Mm-hmm. It's not even the words that you say. So a stare yeah. would have to be very sure. pointed in order to get your, your he, things across. And look, he's, this is something you hear a lot about today. I mean, he was catcalling her. And, uh, and it says quite innocently and foolishly. Yeah. But still. And she wasn't going to have any of it. And Not, that stood out to me, too. Yeah. <laughs> innocently. Innocently. You know. Foolishly. That almost an- annoyed me. Yeah. Like, and, okay, I'll get along with the foolishly, but there's so many men who catcall today who are like, oh, I'm just trying to pay you a compliment. Right. I'm just trying to, you know, oh, why are you God. being so mean? And it's like, I just don't want to walk down the street yeah. and be harassed. I don't care if you had innocent intentions, yeah. which you didn't. This is a situation where she's saying with her eyes, I don't have time for this. Mm-hmm. I've got bigger things going, and I'm not going to mollycoddle you. Yeah. I'm not going to entertain this for a minute. Gee, thanks. No. Mm-mm. No. Get out of here. Yeah. And he's shaking afterward. Yeah. And I love this because Cather does a really cool thing where she uses words to describe what he is feeling. When I'm reading it, it feels like a young woman who's been like spurned by a lover. I mean, it says... His hand was unsteady when he took the glass from the bartender. His feeble, flirtatious instincts had been crushed before, but never so mercilessly. And this is whenever it gets to, like, I believe, words that one often associates with, like, a female character. Uh Um, He felt cheap and ill-used. You're right. As if someone had taken advantage of him. So what Cather does is takes a situation where a man was fundamentally, I mean, this is us interpreting the text. Absolutely, always. Trying to to steal power, (laughs) Mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. Make someone feel, I mean, something like that, uh, whether it's innocent or foolish or not, that's meant to make one feel off guard, if nothing else, to tip somebody off of their um, awareness, make them vulnerable. And what she did with the stare is revert that onto him, so that he felt cheap, he felt ill-used, and he felt like he had been taken advantage of. For a period of time after the encounter even happened, because that's what happened. He made his way to the saloon and <laughs> ordered a drink. The, yeah, he grabbed the drink yeah. and he was still shaking. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's a very good observation. Interesting. I, did, I didn't really pick up on that at first. Yeah. 
And I, li- I also think it's great too, which this is kind of going back a ways, when the little boy says, sister, my kitty's up the tree. Mm-hmm. Her first instinct is to try and get the cat down herself. Mm-hmm. Kitty, 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 come down. Doesn't waste much time. It's not coming down. I've got to get somebody to get it up. She's yeah. in a hurry, you know, matter of fact. Um, she obvious, obviously cares about the little boy. Uh-huh. If she didn't, she'd say, get in the wagon. We're going home. The kitty's going to stay up the puddle. <laughs> For I told as long him as I, it can. I told you not to bring him into town. Yeah. So there's a level of compassion. Yep. But also, I'm in a rush. We don't have time. And she's and this is all um, this is all establishing the character because this is stuff that carries through the novel. Yeah, and then also not to jump around too much, but going back to that man, um, the fact that he's trying to interject himself into the situation in a way well obviously something's going on you know obviously this this young woman is handling it he's entering their space being obnoxious and he's just one of the many people in this town who's just passing by not helping the distressed little boy Uh, it just it stuck out to me i wonder if she's in a way i don't know playing to or trying to draw attention to the fact that these are immigrants they're swedes Mm -hmm. and um Maybe she's making some kind of reference to the invisibility of the immigrants. You know what I'm saying? They have a weeping child here. No one's acknowledging. Sure. And also, I want to say this, going back to her response to his cat call. Maybe we're supposed... Maybe we can infer that this is not the first time something like this has happened to her. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, yeah. If she's... We don't know her age yet. You said she was a teenager. I believe she's like 16 at this point. Yeah, but, yeah. When you hear stories of like the first time I've been catcalled. Right. Even recently with the hashtag Me Too mm-hmm. um, thing that was going on with social media, you see just stories of women being like, I was 12 the first time a man cat called yeah. me. So by 16, <clears throat> that's four years of harassment. Absolutely. So at this point, it's just like, I know how to deal with you. I know exactly, exactly. what kind of stare to give you, and this is what I'm doing. And right. I'm, I've, I really want to read the rest of that story because if this mm-hmm. is the first few pages, and I feel so confident that this is just like a badass chick i, I want to read more Absolutely. about what they get into in this western environment where there are a lot of hazards and there are this a lot is, of this is really the first chapter is a simple for and the first chapter is like five pages mm-hmm. it's a foretaste of what's to come yeah and it she does a great job as the novel progresses of taking what she has initially laid down and building on it and building on it and building on it. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about Cather's work, and the truth is not every author can do this, by the time the novel is ended, you're going to know what I'm talking about here, the closer you get to the end, the more sad you become because you realize the narrative's about to stop. Oh, yes. And you're so enmeshed in it. Mm-hmm. And you're so engrossed in it. Mm-hmm. And you're invested in the character. That by the time you get to the end, you're like, man, this is this is tough. Like, I mean, it's the same with like a TV series when you just love what's happening. Yeah, you get crazy. Cather's great at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I can tell already because yeah. I already love this character. There's something too if you reflect on the writing style. I mean, she wrote pretty well, mostly about the heartland, the American Midwest, the experience of the pioneer, the developing of America, and there's something playing. It's she doesn't embellish a great deal. Mm. She uses great adjectives, great adverbs, Amazonian fierceness, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of frill. And I think that reflects the environment, the time, period of time where people were concerned about eking out a living rather than, I mean, the girl here, she's more concerned about getting in and out of town mm-hmm. than she is about making sure her hair is pinned in a certain way. Exactly. Utilitarian. So I think that Cather's writing style appropriately reflects um, her subject matter. 
Yeah, and I, I noticed that she kind of multitasks. Again, to go back to that one line, yeah. like uh, this Amazonian stare. She stabbed him with it. You know, you sh- you're you're moving the story along. Yeah. You're, you're saying that he's, she's looking at him in a certain way, but also you're getting a little bit more of characterization, even um, visually. Totally establishing Alexandra as, I mean, a warrior in terms of a warrior, mm-hmm. a sort of goddess you know yeah. something someone who is steel boned you know her back is straight and ready to take what comes her way and even as an amazonian myself i think <laughs> i just i just think this girl is just tall she's... and just like fierce she's wearing a men's mm-hmm. a man's coat you know that's one of the other things about it you know this is a swedish family and they're described in very nordic terms broad Tall, square, blonde, mm-hmm. powerful, not uh, people with very few words. Yeah, clearly. And, she, and she's part of that. So do you think that um, Willa Cather is kind of seeing herself in this character? Or do you think, you know, she grew up in this area that had a lot of immigrants? Do you think she's reporting on what she's seen, basically? I, I think, like any good author, she's taking the two and weaving them together. I think mm. she's saying, I know it was like I know what it was like for me mm. to be a sixteen year old girl in Nebraska growing up feeling different. I also got the great anthropological experience of studying these people. She knew what it I mean, of course she didn't have the experience of being a Swedish immigrant, but she had the great opportunity to study Swedish immigrants in Nebraska around the time this was Print, you know, Very written. closely. I mean, if you're in a small town. Exactly. <laughs> so the thing is, I think she's saying, I know how they talked. I know how they walked. I know the matter-of-factness of these people. I can take that and then take my own first-hand experience and create something um, that's believable. And that's when it comes down to, it's one thing to write about Swedish people living in 1890 Nebraska. You know, I, I could do that. Is it going to be nearly as realistic as what she's doing? Probably not. No. no. Yeah, I think she she does both. Yeah, that's a great little time capsule we have here. It is. So, our theme is secrets. Secrets. And I want to know why you chose Willa Cather when we said that we would talk about this. Right. I chose Cather because I was really fascinated by the fact that for a period of time in her life, she was comfortable enough, and, you know, history lets us know that there were many people who were uncomfortable with you know, the fact that she wanted to pursue medicine and the fact that she presented masculinely. But she was comfortable enough to do that for a period of several years. Mm-hmm. And then at some point just totally dropped it yeah. and said, I'm just going to be fall into the standard ideal of Edwardian femininity. Yes. Um, so I think that although she did live proudly uh, you know maybe it was a phase I mean one could speculate all day long about these things mm-hmm. but for a period of time she chose to be different yes and project that mm-hmm. outwardly and you know no matter how mature a person gets you've got to think there's a piece of one that remains um, no matter how old one gets or um, how much life experience one gets exactly. and so she chose to, to keep that at least outwardly buried what she did in her private life no one really knows but um I really feel like there's a secret there. Also, her relationship with both McClung and Lewis. Yes. Her muse was McClung. Yeah. Yes. And Lewis was her 
they were in a sort of Boston marriage. Mm-hmm. So I just think, you know, there's a lot about, there's so much mystique surrounding her. Mm-hmm. It would be impossible for me to say, oh, Willa Cather had no secrets. Yeah. Or like, even Willa Cather had no secrets about who she was as a person. Yeah. So um, that's why I chose her. And I think her writing reflects so much. If you look at her bibliography, she really was interested in the and like what happens to a woman when she ages and the value of mm-hmm. a woman as she ages how it, she felt it decreased she changed her birth date mm-hmm. you know yeah um, she really her success did not she didn't even find success in terms of being published until she was in her 40s yeah you know and so um, there's just so much so many layers in her and around her that I think if you had the chance to sit down with her today and say, look, off the record, let's talk, mm-hmm. it would just blow you away. Yeah. I think the fact that there are so many questions that are not answered, exactly. that's enough to yes. say, oh, this woman has secrets. And you know, oftentimes when people start saying, oh, I want to do a biography on so-and-so, mm-hmm. there's so few letters that would indicate any sort of anything very you know what I mean or any yeah. diaries that we can glean information from and that to me makes it even more mysterious yeah and secretive yeah this is a good choice yeah I think so especially because her writing reflects so much of that stuff yeah so much of the internalized stuff like this character Alexandra for example it's in third person but the little bit you get from her you know when you're reading about this character there's something in this character's mind we don't have access to and we're not gonna get it no and I think because she does seem a little guarded in a lot of ways. Very aloof. Yeah, I want to do. I want to ask before we move on. Yeah. Is there any like romance in this story for this character? You know, um, she references the the Lindstroms, mm-hmm. the Lindstroms, and Carl in particular. Carl Lindstrom's family were or like a Norwegian immigrant family, mm-hmm. or something like that, and they're her neighbors. And she and Carl are buddies mm-hmm. when the story begins. And then the Lindstroms move away because of environmental reasons and stuff. But they reconnect when they get older. And there's a there's a sort of feeling at one point of like a myth, like a lost love, a misconnection, I should say. Mm-hmm. But Heather writes it in such a way, it's hard to say because you kind of feel like Carl is a male version of this character. You don't know what's going on there. And when they come together, the story ends with them kind of looking out over the, the prairie as it's the sunsets. Mm-hmm. And it's this feeling of, we're in our 40s and maybe we've missed out on something here. But it's also like, we're, we're friends. We're, we're, More we're, than we've missed out on like love. Yeah. It's it's interpretable. That's the thing. Yeah. But I, I think... But, it, you know, Sunset is very romantic, of course. But, it like, is. that could be two buddies looking out on the prairie. That's kind of the vibe one gets. Yeah. Um, you have to read it because there's it's easy. And, and she writes to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a desperation there. And so I think it's, it's open to interpretation. This is a woman who's way more concerned with industry than she is with romance. Mm. Yeah. She's more interested in cultivating the land than she is with being a mother or a wife Mm -hmm. and look the role she plays in this novel is extremely masculine she's the head of her family she's got brothers and she's the head of the family and they try to push up against that and she stands there 
and take and, and, and puts them in their place. So it's very interesting. And I think she's she could easily be read mm-hmm. if we took pronouns out of this. This is a character that can easily be read as ma- as male, masculine. Mm-hmm. I think male in terms of like the era in which this is written. As absolutely, with, yeah. With with gender norms. And then also, maybe she's more respected because she she is also female. You know, she's female. Exactly. She's masculine. She's a bit feminine because you know she know. she cares about that cat. She cares about the cat. But she's gonna get it done really quickly exactly. and tell the little boy to stop crying. And there's a there's a level of. I don't know. I don't, at this point, I don't want to start drawing on gender stereotypes, but you know, this is great because she's a powerful woman. She's got economic intelligence. Mm-hmm. She's got foresight that's out of this world. Mm-hmm. And as the novel progresses, she's wildly respected by the people in the community. And so, by the time the novel sort of works its way forward, it winds up in the sort of present day that Cather's writing. There's like electricity and things like that going on. <laughs> <Whoa>. so. <laughs> so anyway, it's interesting. It really is. And it's worth reading. If you're a fan of um, Americana, I think it would be her works are great for that. Mm-hmm. If you're a fan of interesting gender dynamics, yeah, her work is great for that. And also if you're strictly interested in... Um, history i think i'll say that's yeah i mean you learned about coats that i've already forgotten the name of <laughs> ulster coats ulster coats yes <laughs> see we're already smarter y'all yes and copper toed shoes and that sort oh, of oh yes thing. so if you're into <laughs> edwardian clothing <laughs> give it a read oh pioneers exclamation point by willa cather i think this was a great kickoff to something that has the potential to be a lot of fun for you and me. Yes, yes. It will get less weird and the editing will be easier. It'll be easier and we'll... I, you know, this has been like the first time they launched the rocket into space. It was bumpy and somebody died. But... Yeah, we had a third co-host. We had a third co-host. We didn't make it. Heather, That's we so will dark. remember you for the rest. This episode is dedicated to Heather. <laughs> to Heather, comma, our friend. <laughs> right, yeah. So, you know, in respect to that, this has been a bumpy road. I think we've it's been fun and interesting, but I know that from here on out, we're going to finesse our technique. Yeah, please stick around. <laughs> I will, if you'll have me. No, not you. I meant the audience. Oh. Stick around if you'll have us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this could be a one-woman show. I'm joking. I'm and I'm that woman. I honey, need you. So you better watch out. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, well, this has been the first episode of the Writer Who Reads podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trevor Kinchin. And thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more, write a little better, and, and explore the human condition, condition together. together. So we intended to have two authors per episode that we would go over, but Trapper, you want to share why that does not work? It's an hour and 15 minutes. An hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> it's way too long. And we know that we're super interesting and that you all would just listen to us all day, mm-hmm. but in order to make anything make sense at all, we're going to split this into two episodes. So part two is going to maintain the same theme, secrets. And that's my time to shine with my authoress, who I will introduce to you shortly. So head on over to part two. Yeah, if you want to hear more about secrets and fascinating people and hear our rhetoric. Yes. For what it's worth. Hear us, yeah. <laughs> hear us be really, really new to podcasting. Really new to podcasting. So endearing. Thank you for listening to part one. Yes. I hope you enjoyed. But believe me, part two. It's, it's there and it's waiting for you and it's really juicy. 
It's a lot to promise, but you know what? I think it lives up to the hype. Oh, what's to say? It, it is, does. right? It okay. Does. I was self-conscious. Anyway, yeah, go head on over and we will see you in the next one. Thanks.